Hello and welcome to Plants and Pipettes, where we talk plant science. My name is Tegan. Hi, my name is Joram. And what have you been doing, Joram? <laughs> uh, I'm not at uh, liberty to speak about it. Okay, um, then I shall ask you no more questions, so you shall tell me no lies. Um, I have been frolicking around the countryside and I saw Wuthering Heights last week at the theatre, which was super fun. Not at all related to plants, so for those of you who like to skip ahead, please feel free to. But before you do, <laughs> it might be interesting to know that Wuthering Heights is set on the moors of North England, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And moors, as it turns out, are in fact defined by their vegetation. So a moorland is an uncultivated hill where small shrubs grow in acidic soil. Okay. Cool story. Yes. Um, do you know? Do you know what Wuthering Heights is? No, I don't. Like, I know I asked you, but I already forgot forgot the answer that you gave me. And I only, I in my head there is a music album that's called Wuthering Heights, but I can't find it for no, the no, life of a... me right now. So whenever I Google Wuthering Heights, I only find find uh, Wuthering Wuthering Heights. There's a really famous song by a British singer called Kate Bush um, called Wuthering Heights, and it's so famous that in fact, like in Berlin, they would do this um, mob dance. What's it called? Flash mob dancing, uh-huh. where everybody would dress up in these red dresses. She does very sort of eccentric um, dancing. It's sort of lots of arms waving about and sort of slow motion movements and it's yeah. super amazing and yeah I, I thought it so Wuthering Heights is this English classic it's sort of in the it's by the one of the Bronte sisters Emily Bronte but it's sort of in the the Jane Austen Pride and Prejudice kind of like this female writing classic um, set in the olden times and I thought I kind of I've never seen it or read it or like I've never seen any version of it I thought I kind of knew what it was about though um, <laughs> But I, it turns out my thought was based entirely on this song that I listened to a billion times growing up. My dad loved this song. So, like, that's, like, etched in my memory. Um, so <laughs> I went with a, a friend and I explained to him, like, oh, yeah, it's it's about, like, a troubled young man who comes to live with a family. It turns out it's really traumatic. And um, I gave my companion trauma dreams from <laughs> making him watch that show. It's a lot of, like, generational trauma and really, like, really lesson in how... We probably all need therapy um, <laughs> to get over things. But it was great. I mean, that's, it was really that's also a bonding moment that you created there. <laughs> like, Remember what's... that time we both uh, needed therapy after? <laughs> it's like, I felt like you undersold this. You were like, yeah, it's a slightly troubled youth. And it's actually like a very abusive character. Um, I feel like the more plays I see, I just like the main message of the play is people should really like talk to somebody about their issues <laughs> instead of letting that continue. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. Um, it's nice to be out and about in the world again. But so that was um, theater or musical theater? Oh, it was a theater, but it also had some sort of interpretive dancey parts in it. So, mm-hmm. like, my favorite part is that at the very the very first scene is a man trying to like struggle through the wild and windy moors. Um, as a reminder, that's low shrubland on acidic soils um, <laughs> of England, and he comes to a house and. Um, it's very, very windy, so he's seeking refu- refuge in this house because it's just, like, so extreme outside. Um, and there's three, like, extra characters on the sidelines were playing the winds. So he would he'd sort of have these encounters with the people in the house, and they were very unpleasant people. So then he'd be he'd about to go back out again. He'd open the door, and these two females from the side, like, three females from the sidelines just sit up and were like, ah, ah. <laughs> like, they were being the winds. So every time he'd open the door, there was just, like, these three women, like, ah. So, I mean, obviously, I've spent the last, like, half a week just pretending to be the wind whenever 
<laughs> and then at one point he like goes to open the door and they all sort of stand up eagerly about to scream and then he quickly shuts up before like they can it was nice it was really like kind of funny and like weird sort of interpretations some singing some dancing a bit like I would like to have three screaming women outside right now um, <laughs> compared to what we actually have. I, I literally five minutes before we started recording got like a notification on my phone, um, a catastrophe or hazard warning. I don't know what the English word for it is. Like official warning from the government that we have like extreme storms right now. And we've been having we have that, that for too a day. as well. Yeah, I think there's some sort of cyclone going through. We've got that yeah. happening in. Yeah, so it's 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 a little bit scary sometimes. I mean, right now it's fine. Um, but at night, the winds are howling and they're more terrifying, I guess, than three screaming women right now. Um, so I would, I would happily sw- change that and have instead just like very, very angry women outside. Although I don't know if I really want to, like, I don't want to be the reason for them to be angry, but I want them, I take angry women over wind they that's were, trying to uproot the trees here right now. <laughs> yeah, they were being, they were being the wind. I felt like it was more of like a joyous, righteous, like, like. I feel like the anger of nature is often like quite smug and happy, right? Like, it's like it's not like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uncaring. It doesn't you you didn't give it a reason and it's still angry. Um, that's like different from angering a person. It's more like a general, broad, joyful anger of of nature. Anyway, so you have nothing to talk about. <laughs> you just dumb. I'm just sitting okay. here hunkered down while there's a lot of wind outside. I'm not going outside um, so I don't get a branch on my head. Um, and that's my life. <laughs> and, and the made-up holiday of Valentine's Day, did you do anything? No. Um, no, me neither. Good, let's move on. Um, let's talk about our favorite plants today. Yarum, Yarum. <laughs> favorite plant and my favorite plant this week is uh, Nesocodon mauritianus um, it's a plant that's native to Mauritius I should have looked up if it's actually an orchid because to me it looks like an orchid um, but uh, it's I don't know if it's if it's one on the website from Kew Gardens that we're linking <laughs> there's not immediately a sign saying Yoram this is an orchid or Yoram this is not an orchid so I can't it's tell you that it's not an orchid it doesn't look like an orchid and it is in fact not an orchid <laughs> Yes, but what is uh, special about it, um, and if you're looking at it already, you can maybe tell me what you see in the center of that flower. Uh, it looks like it has blood in the center. It's yes, got, like, it has a very dots. bright red nectar. And um, this nectar is eaten by little geckos, and these are the main pollinators of these plants. And they're native to Mauritius, that's why they are called Nesocodon mauritianus, uh, and they were on the brink of extinction. Mm-hmm. Um they, they could find in the 1970s only a single population of these plants growing on a waterfall cliffside um, where they got moisture and were sort of protected from uh, from competition and so on. So they, they were growing there. And back in the 70s, they were tr- uh, taking cuttings from them and trying to grow them, but had no luck. So they thought this is the only population that's left. But then, um, like some 10 years later, uh, another expedition there could secure some seeds. And with the seeds... They could then actually grow in greenhouses these plants and save them from extinction mm-hmm. by growing them now uh, in in horticulture. Uh, so this plant is very very rare in nature, but it's still a very or maybe that's why it's very interesting to study because it has this red nectar, um, and there's a specific um, a gecko that's really 
uh, likes this nectar and when given the choice in the lab between red nectar and white nectar the, the gecko will always go for the red nectar first and so they studied what's what's going on there and they found that um, in a study that was I think fairly recently published um, they found that um, this nectar contains a specific compound um, the red mm -hmm. dye and this is what makes the, the geckos be really in interested in this in this nectar so the, the geckos can see the color? I mean, I don't know. I don't really know much about, I guess, gecko eyesight. They can see different colors. They can yeah. see red. So, Yeah, I think they can they, see the color. But actually, I didn't look uh, if they chose first on sight or if they tasted it and then stuck more with the red one. But they would drink like um, several minutes from the, the red nectar while they would only take a couple of sips from the white nectar. Can you nectar. imagine then like a gecko with like blood smeared or like it would look like a little zombie gecko. You just have like this red blood. Because I'm looking at some images on, on Google um, and there's pictures of people like tapping the nectar onto their hands and it looks like it's almost staining the hands. It's not just sort of mm -hmm. a pale red. It's quite like it's viscous enough and it's really a strong, mm -hmm. a strong color. Yeah, it really is. Uh, and so they recently identified the dye and they um, gave it the name called uh, Nesocodin, based mm -hmm. on the name plant Nesocodon. Uh, and they realized that there's actually two specific enzymes in the plant that haven't been described before that are involved in the biosynthesis of these, um, these red dyes. And this is very interesting because the, apparently these dyes seem to be fairly food safe. Um, and therefore, it's very interesting for food biotech or not food biotech food tech uh, to use these dyes as an alternative to the red dyes we currently have. Whenever we want to uh, color in something in red, and so that now okay. they patented actually the researchers looking into this, they patented the process, and they're doing further tests now. Of course, this is too early to say like if this really is um, food safe a hundred percent, but they're working on bringing this to the market as a new. Uh, food dye um, based off of this uh, plant from Mauritius uh, that uh, the the geckos really like. And we're linking a little um, article about this where you can also see a gecko on a sample of this red nectar and trying it. Um, it's unclear so far what this nasocodine compound does to the gecko, apart from being bright red. Maybe it has another effect, but we don't know that yet. Um, mm -hmm. Why the gecko, when given the choice prefers the the red one over the the white one i mean it could have, be so have they tried that have they tried like the side by side yeah some red liquid in a yeah okay. yeah in a, in a side by side cool. experiment they uh they prefer the the red one uh but it's unclear if it's based on taste on physiological properties on sight on on behavior on just learned behavior that they will always go for the red um or something sort of inherent something that they learned on an evolutionary scale that they will rather go for the red uh, color um but yeah it's it's really cool because red colors are or colorants are fairly inaccessible and we have a lot of synthetic um food dyes but having them from a natural source always makes them a little bit more accepted by end users and often also a little bit safer than um things that are sort of byproducts of other sort of non-biological chemical processes. Um, yeah, that's uh, we're linking to an article that also has then the full source of the of the paper there uh, about the Nesocodon mauritianus plant. Diversity in the class. Science. 
Hey, so it's my turn today um, to talk about our non-white male scientist. And Yoram, actually, you sent me an article from the John Innes Center, which was celebrating the fact that last Friday on the 11th of February was International Women and Girls in Science Day. So I sort of ended up finding somebody to talk about today as a weird rabbit hole, skippy loopy <laughs> thing from there. But before we go to that, I do want to talk about a few things. We'll link to the article. It's got like some really interesting information in there. Um, for example, women were unable to gain a full degree until as late as 1948 at Cambridge. Um which is not just, you know, it's hard for us to tell, it's like historical, but just by comparison, Oxford let women have degrees in 1919. So it's like a full 30 years mm-hmm. delay on another university very close by in the country. So it's just kind of a interesting deliberate choice there. <laughs> um, some other fun facts were the fact that there was this um, marriage barrier. Did you Did you read about this? No. Um, so basically there's something called a marriage bar, which was that when women got married, they were basically unable to keep working. So you can work until you get married. And then after that, you you have more get. important things to do. Exactly. Um, <laughs> they don't want a woman to be distracted from her, her womanly duties, um, right. wifely duties. So um, until 1919, women who were teachers were, were barred, like married women couldn't teach um, once they were married. And um, yeah, I think... In civil service, it went until 1946, so after World War II even. But that wasn't the case for scientific research, so that was actually quite interesting to me that apparently it was fine for women to keep on working in mm-hmm. the field if they did science. And I'm not really sure like who came up with those distinctions. Like, in If you work in the post office, you have to stop, and if you work in science, you don't have to. But I can imagine that it's uh, completely op- off the top of my head that there were just fewer women in science, so nobody care to make a ruling there they were already sort of exceptional in this space that there was no need for the rule compared to in a post office or other jobs where you have a larger population of women actually doing the work but i have no idea yeah, if that's that could true. be it could be the case yeah that's that's possible um it might also be that it's not like a um like civil service linked to the government so it's not um yeah. covered by these sort of larger you know government-based rulings but I'm not sure. Anyway, the the article also mentions that there's um, a person called Marsha Richmond, and she is a historian of biology. Um, She sort of looks at evolution, cell theory, genetics, but she's also got an interest in women and gender in the early 20th century life sciences. So she's been researching that. And she has a book coming out, co-authored with another person, Ida Stamhuis, um, and it's called Genes and Gender, Women in the Emergence of Genetics from the 1900s to 1940s. But unfortunately, it's not out yet. It's still in preparation. So I actually was looking for this book because I want to read about it and also steal facts from it for our podcast, um, but it's not there. <laughs> so then my rabbit hole was looking first for this person, Marsha, um, and then looking to see if the book had, had come out in, I mean... The article in the was only written like last week. <laughs> in the thirty minutes since I started reading the article, um, <laughs> but <laughs> as we all do, I anyway just put the title into Google to see what's happening, and I came up with a different article which was published in November last year in Frontiers in Genetics, um, and it's a review article, and it's written by Hadil El Bardsi and Malak Abed Al 
Thagafi. Sorry, I said those names wrong, I'm sure. But they were um, looking at the history and challenges of women in genetics, a focus on non-Western women. So they've written a review basically on the topic of genetics, but, you know, non-Western women and the rules they've played. And they've basically gone um, through different areas of the world and sort of highlighted different women in those parts and in different um, sub-disciplines within the broader genetic field to sort of show that there are inspiring examples of women. We just don't happen to hear about many of them. So the one I wanted to talk about today is, of course, somebody who's related to plants. And her name is Arkana Sharma. And she's known sometimes as the godmother of botany. Um, I'm going to read like basically from their their article because it's, it's just nicely written. So I'm just going to go through some of the main facts about Arcana. So they first actually start by talking about the fact that botany was sort of seen as more of an amusement for women and women got these very prescribed roles when interacting with plants. So it was either sort of you know, home gardeners or gathering plants, sort of more ornamental or like in this kind of housewife herbalist, but actually doing the official study of science was seen as very masculine. And we, we sort of know this. Um, we've seen a lot of female botanists come up, but often they sort of got into botany historically via the artistic style. We have a lot mm -hmm. of women who were like drawing the specimens and that's how, and even in the time they weren't really acknowledged as botanists. They were seen as sort of a an accessory to the men who were discoverers and these women who were like, yeah. artists associated um, with the discoverers. But nonetheless, um, we have Dr. Sharma, who was born in India to an academic family, and she graduated, did her master's and PhD in the Department of Botany at the University of Kolkata. And she became just the second woman to receive a doctorate in botany in this university. So it's um, quite an achievement quite early on. Um, it's 1960 that she got that doctorate. And she was obviously interested in botany, but she was interested in more the molecular biology um, side of things, not just with plants, but broadly speaking, she really likes cytogenetics, um, human genetics, and also environmental mutagenesis. So looking at sort of like the chromosome structures and um, how, how DNA is linked to this and also environmental factors that are involved in mutating and changing um, DNA. She became a faculty member at this university um, in the Department of Botany. And she also was there with her husband, um, Arun Sharma. And they sort of were a power couple of, of science <laughs> in this time. So they were together um, at this university. She became the head of the Department of Botany in the 1980s. And together they published some articles. So she invented a technique for visualizing chromosome structures and this sort of became the the gold standard for this research in the plant cell field so it's sort of a worldwide thing and she and her husband then published a book summarizing this it's called chromosome techniques theory and practice as you can tell it's kind of like a um handbook or sort of you know instruction book so it's it became quite a big thing and they also have a um a paper in nature that was published and that was looking at the fact that in plant cells in the somatic tissue so um, not in the reproductive organs but in the leaves and stuff there can sometimes be different numbers of chromosomes than you might expect mm -hmm. and we think we've discussed it before on the podcast the fact that it's quite common in things like strawberry to just like yeah. double or triple or like add lots of numbers of chromosomes so in this article which was written by herself and also her husband it's called 
fixity, which I've never heard of that word, fixity in chromosome numbers of plants. And it's a very short report where they say that they're looking at several different species and they're noticing that there's not always the right amount of chromosomes when you're looking at different cells. So like usually there's the right amount, but sometimes there seem to be like duplicates, but also sort of abnormal numbers that don't even have the right patterns like doubles or triples. It's just that they've sort of like lost a chromosome or two which um, is not like a super common thing, but it is something that does happen sometimes mm-hmm. in plants that they um, just like lose the chromosome. <laughs> and obviously these kind of like changes can be a pathway towards like evolution and speciation when you start playing around um, with, with chromosome numbers. We, we kind of com- commonly talk about the doubling of chromosomes, which leads to um, new species, so the, the doubling of all of the genetic material, um, yeah. polyploidy. Um, but this was sort of one thing they discussed. And what I actually liked about this paper, so it's by Arun Sharma, this is the husband, and Arkana Sharma, but in the brackets it also says Ni, so like previously known as um, Mukherjee, so it's like has her maiden name on the paper as well, which I think is quite interesting that we used to do that and we don't do that anymore. And I was curious and I was like, oh, maybe she's put that because she had already established herself in the scientific field before. And I could find at least one paper that had her maiden name on the paper as well. So I guess she'd already published something before she got the married name. So then it makes sense that you want to link mm-hmm. this scientific identity before, like, you know, name change can be confusing if you don't have modern things like ORC IDs and, yeah. and stuff like that. So it's, I don't know, I thought that was quite nice that it was actually there on the paper. Um, and I'm also, we've discussed that again on the podcast, I think we're, we're moving into a place where it'll be easier to sort of acknowledge changes on papers. We've seen this for like trans people with the dead names getting um, easily switched out. But I think like things like ORC IDs make it sort of that we should be able to change the name without it affecting the identity like this. Yeah. Surely we have the ability and capacity and technology to do this now. So I'm hoping that this kind of thing, that there's a clearer scientific record of people depending on if they change their name or if they get, you know, married for whatever reason, if you change your name, like, yeah. But it's interesting that was kind of already a thing back then. So as I mentioned, um, they had this textbook. Um, it's got things about like molecular and histological techniques. So how to fix and stain and process cells and then how to sort of look at the chromosomes and see their structures. Um, yeah, I really like visualizing the, the banding patterns on the chromosomes, helping you identify the different chromosomes. And this is sort of like still somewhat a, a famous textbook so it came out in the 80s and it's still sort of around as a textbook um as mentioned they also sort of had this um discovery of the fact that you can get um inconsistent chromosome mosaicism so there's like different number of chromosomes um i mentioned that already with the paper and then they also looked at different methods so she was um investigating um how to induce cell divisions um so this is again sort of the looking at how we can make changes in plants which is very important for for plant breeding she also did some stuff with human genetics which we're not going to talk about because we're not that interested in human genetics um (laughs) as well as looking at some quite important things which are like the impact of things like heavy metals and pesticides on different biological systems so how that can have an effect at the cellular level so causing chromosomal abnormalities inhibiting mitosis like disrupting cell division and stuff like that. So this is all quite important things. 
She was, of course, recognized for this amazing research. She was a fellow of the Indian National Science Academy, elected in 1977. She became president of the Indian Botanical Society in the late 80s. Um, and the general president of the Indian Science Congress Association. And she also got like quite a number of different awards as well um, throughout her lifetime. Um, yeah, so finally, she was also a member of the panel for the cooperation with UNESCO. Um, and yeah, she passed away on in 20, 2008. So that's kind of her her life history. Mm -hmm. But I think this is somebody who I've not come across before, which in itself is a bit weird. She seems to have had like a really important role, um, really cool science, interesting stuff. Um, yeah. So but many, again, like, there's just so many ground laying techniques um, in in there. Like right, the the, the whole karyotyping or chromosomal uh, analysis stuff that's like still today. So so often you find that in papers where some now we call it epigenetics but some like major chromosomal structures have an impact on phenotype and so on and it's yeah i've, mm. I've also not I, I didn't come across her so far um despite being that important yeah and it's gonna mention like she was really prolific so i didn't mention she published 10 books not so there's like that, that big textbook but like 10 books in total and between 300 and 400 research papers so she was <laughs> really productive um in her time yeah. If you're interesting, I'm also going to link to a couple of um, other articles. There's one which has like a nice little animation as well from a cartoon. So we're going to put those in the show notes as well. But Ooh. that was Arkana Sharma. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias, 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 bias. So I found a study um, called Bias in Ecological Research, Attitudes of Scientists and Ways of Control, published in Scientific Reports by Elena Shvereva and Mikhail Kozlov. And I found this a very interesting read. And I want to, it's, I mean, it's in the title, it talks about biases in uh, the field of ecology. And what they did in this study is that they um, uh, did a survey, um, sort of a self uh, self-examination of the participants uh, in their uh, in their knowledge and attitude towards biases in their own research field. So they were asking questions, uh, how knowledgeable do you feel? And also I think they had to give definitions of biases to sort of test it if they understand what a bias is. And that's a little bit over 300 participants that um, took part in this survey and this is the analysis that they published and it's quite interesting. Um, so overall, um, over 80% of people were aware of biases that they exist and were also able to um, tell, like, to, um, to, to acknowledge it's important to avoid these biases and find ways to avoid these. They often ask about like, how do you approach biases in your own research? What can you do? And um, they ask them, like what are measures that you can do and the the most common one is things like reporting all results not only the statistically significant ones checking for repeat repeatability of measurements performing of a random choice of experimental units and using blinding um in in the experiment so these things came up so which is a good sign that people were aware that 
these are ways you can approach your bias, um, that these things exist. But at the same time, 15% of these respondents believe that a haphazard selection of experimental units could also help. And so, and haphazard here... Sorry, what? <laughs> hap is very important to discrimi discriminate from random. Random, not random. They didn't want to... So instead of using a systematic approach or um, a truly random approach of picking whatever things you want to measure, they think just like picking with your gut feeling um, things that you want to measure and things that you want to analyze is a better approach to avoid biases. Um, and this shows that there is a gap in education there. So while people are aware of biases, they pick the wrong thing, only 15%, but still 15% out of uh, these ecology researchers picked the absolutely wrong thing to address biases in their own research. Um, so what they, what are they haphazardly choosing? Like what what they measure? Or it's what? called experimental units. Um, so I think this is a more general term for like decisions you have to make in your experiment, uh, sort of data points that you take or how you set up your experiment. I think this is a more general term for that. Um, the other interesting thing from this study is that. Um, or maybe I'll, I'll let you guess. If you if I tell you they asked uh, early career uh, scientists, mid-career scientists, and late-career scientists, so professors, uh, for their approach to biases, who do you think out of these three groups is uh, more aware of bias, uh, like of the most bias types? Early, but that's because I'm biased against old professors. <laughs> yes. But you're right to be biased uh, in this case. It's um, they also asked them where they know this from, and they said uh, the early career scientists knew it from courses at university or stuff during their education. I was going to say, like, I mean, I'm kind of joking because I do think there is a bit more discussion of these things happening now. Like just the fact that this this research yeah. is getting published, I think that's that is happening a little bit more now, maybe. Yeah, exactly. So the professors, they knew it sometimes from conferences or from scientific papers, but they did usually not know it from workshops or courses at uh, universities, which is interesting because usually in my experiences, most of these courses are actually open to professors as well. Um, mm. They're often very general courses for everybody working at an institution, uh, including professors. But usually you find the early career scientists overrepresented in these classes and then you see that in surveys like this, where then the early career scientists have a higher knowledge of these things. Um, uh, and especially biases like confirmation bias, observer bias, selection bias, and cognitive biases in general are we're more aware to early career scientists compared to um, senior scientists. So that's also what I think. I would think like in the like the more traditional way of discussing bias was really that kind of like reproducing like replicas, like these. Mm -hmm. What's the other one? Repeating um, the three R sort of that sort of bias, which is like the scientific, like experimental setup kind of stuff. But I think those kind of cognitive biases thing of like, oh, you actually all have bias as as people separate from your attempt to do science. I think we discussed that a little bit more, maybe. Yeah, that yeah, would be I my think guess. So. Um, another thing where I can make you guess in the in when it comes to self-reporting, who do you think claims to have um, uh, to claim or who who claims more to uh, to be very well aware of biases, men or women? <laughs> I'm not answering that question. I played the fifth. <laughs> so men, um, thirty nine percent of men claim that they were very well aware of biases, and only twenty seven percent of women did that. Mm -hmm. um, at the same but time, you're, um, maybe who, the men just are more self aware <laughs> of bias. No, but do, who do you think then um, rates the impact of biases higher, women or men? 
I played the fifth. <laughs> uh, and this time it's uh, women. The female scientists gave higher ratings for the impact of biases on the different stages of research. Um, uh, so co compared to men so men think that they know more but the women are more aware of the importance of the biases like they assess it as a higher impact another interesting finding there was that they asked what do you think um, what importance does bias play in science in general your research field and your project so sort of a big uh, <laughs> the, the big mm -hmm. world the area that you work in and you specifically and most people said that in um it's very important in um in science in general uh, also the importance of biases is high in science in general and in the research field um but it's ne negligible in their own studies uh not everybody said that completely but it was overrepresented that they said um biases in my own studies don't really take place uh and this is a nice example of another bias which is the blind spot bias <laughs> where they where you think okay i see that there is a problem and i think the problem exists in the world and i think the problem is important but not here but with me i'm good i don't have these biases everybody else has the bias i don't um I can see that they could also be um, sort of ranking different types of bias. So you might see that there's like a bias, like a gender bias or, you know, you know, geographical bias or something like that. And they might be sort of seeing that as a more significant bias than survival bias or one of these sort of cognitive biases, which maybe that's part of it as well. Like what you you're ranking yeah. maybe yeah maybe um but but it's it's something known like this asymmetry of the, the assessment of others whether your own work is known in psychology mm -hmm. as this blind spot bias so it's just another bias that we're prone to um to to follow um and Typical. this was also uh, more pronounced in men than in women, this blind spot bias. Uh, and this was also found um, in other gender studies that men usually overestimate their intelligence abilities relative to their objective measures to a greater extent than women do. And this was a direct quote from the paper. Um, so that was very interesting. Um, they also give some ideas how we can combat that first of all of course education about biases seems to have an impact because you see when when there are courses at universities people take part in this and then they have higher knowledge about this uh later on so it would be interesting to do the same thing like in 10 years and see if the early career researchers are now senior and still know about biases but also you need to like educate people about education about bias like you need to tell yeah. people oh like there's a value of education of bias so that they actually go to the courses yeah you know <laughs> yeah. um so but this is one way but and another sort of more systematic approach would be that journals require more strictly that people write down the um th their awareness of bias and the measures that they undertook to fight these biases in their own research um there's mm. some research in some areas where that happens already especially in the medical field this is very common if you think about like double blind experiments I, as a biologist in plant in the plant world, I rarely heard that somebody was doing a double blind study, and mm. in the medical field, this is standard. Wait, sorry, would the plant have to be blindfolded too? I think that might be a problem. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's it's harder to do double blinding in in plants than in humans. That's true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a good point um but in general like blinding is a thing like i think we had it once in in this replication study of plant learning where they did a blinding where somebody else was actually analyzing the data than the person who conducted the experiment okay that's um, a good point yeah so this 
sometimes happens, but sh this should happen more often. Uh, and journals should specifically ask about this so that people have to, when they submit their paper, they have to reflect and think about how they approach biases in their work. And if, if we would do that more, then we would slowly increase sort of awareness and pressure to change these things. I mean, I mean, in fact, that's a bit the reviewing process, right? It's that somebody else is interpreting your data theoretically. I mean, it gets harder yeah. when you have very complex data, but theoretically, that's what the reviewing process is that yeah. somebody independent does that. Yeah. But if I like... If I, I thought about my own research and I try to figure out which proteins are more in, in one sample over the other, I could have given my data set after I do my analysis to somebody else who knows the method and mm -hmm. they do the analysis as well. And then we see if we come up with the same things without me having the implicit bias of things that I want to see come up um, yeah. towards another person. So these are fairly simple uh, approaches of blinding that that could be possible in, in fairness though i mean like with those kind of data sets the data set itself is so large that you're not necessarily looking like you weren't looking for overall trends you were looking is my protein yeah. of interest overrepresented so then it's not it's not incorrect to ask specifically that question you can also do the, the larger scale thing of saying what here is overrepresented like, like what is yeah. but you can you can focus on just one thing that's yeah. okay as long as you're using like the proper statistical testing yeah yeah it's not it's not wrong what we've been doing so far um in in general but it's just we can sort of build on that and add active active uh, methods to to combat bias in there so overall i think this is a paper that's worth a read um it's very it's very easy to read and if you are biased like me uh, against certain demographics uh, and their own self-awareness or lack of that thereof um it's fun to read that as well because you oh i'm not surprised by this finding and apparently the authors weren't either so <laughs> very cool that's a nice story this is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. Okay, Yarm. So, um, we're going to play a game called What Method Is That? Again, we've played Yay. this before in the past. Usually you need a zebra. Um, this time you're going to need some xylene-soaked cotton strings. Okay. You're going to place them on a stainless steel platform. Can I ask what xylene is? Or is that already too much of a giveaway? You is can that Google a sugar that if you want. Have a, have a quick look at what xylene is. That would be an os. It would be xylose if it was a sugar. Xylene means it's like alcoholic, which means... Yeah, but what, what does it do? So it's just an alcohol. We don't need alcohol. to know anything it's just beyond an alcohol. that. Okay, good. It's an alcohol. What's the, what's the prime feature of an alcohol? It burns. Cool. So now you're going to need 15 grams dry weight of litter. You're going to get some little samples and first you're going to oven dry them for 50 to, at 50 to 60 degrees for at least two days or at least a day until all the liquid is gone out of them. Okay, so you then have you're very going to, dry litter, but like, like cat litter? Uh, leaf litter. Leaf litter, okay. Dry the leaf litter. Mm-hmm. Get Set it really it dry. That's the next step. So then you're going to put all of this under the... Um, the lamina food like the uh -huh. yep and then you're going to start a fire and then you start a timer and watch the litter burn and once you've watched the world burn you do the whole thing again get some some xylene coats stoked cotton string get some dry leaf litter start a fire watch the world burn and we do it again you get some xylene soaked <laughs> cotton string you get some <laughs> leaf litter set it on fire watch the world burn what are we doing? What's the point of this experiment? 
I mean, usually when you burn stuff, you want to analyze what's in in the ashes or in the fumes that are, are off, like oh, burned off. I missed. Yeah, so actually, I missed something important. You're going to be measuring the time it takes to to, to burn the world down, um, from the the moment when the litter ignites to when the flame is finished. Um, not just look at how long the fire is there, but also how long it smolders afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, so you're kind of interested in. In burn time. And you maybe want to measure how many... I mean, some plants make uh, oleic compounds so um, that are, are flammable themselves. And so maybe they want to measure how flammable the leaf litter is. I just don't get why they use xylene as the fire starter um, when... I, I, <laughs> um, because it, it seems to be... A more expensive chemical than just using ethanol or any other thing but i think it's just i think it's just like a controlled ignition like so you can put a, the this um string in it and it's just like a could like it starts the burn so like a sort of like imagine a, a string going to a bomb like it's like a little line to, of fire to the leaf litter uh -huh. without like actually it having its own fuel source too much that would then contribute to the burn intensity. So you want to sort of mm -hmm. start the fire on the leaf litter and just see how long it burns. And it's exactly that. You want to see how well different leaf litters burn. Um, we've discussed this before, but some some plants, they really like starting fires. Um, they're little pyromaniacs. They're actually called pyrophytes. So pyrofire fights is the, the planty bit. And that's compared to mesophytes as like the wet plants, which sort of dampen fire and these ones that like to watch the world burn it basically they have like a lot of oils and stuff in the leaves which particularly becomes important when those leaves are are dry and it's because often these plants like survive well in fire which gives them a competitive advantage over other plants that don't or they can even sort of thrive under fire in a certain way so like some australian plants the the fire a chemical in the fire stimulates that the seed cones open and things like that so the seeds germinate in the soil or like the the flowering cones of the plants open so mm -hmm. um so this was exactly that the study was just looking at a whole lot of different plants they looked at 50 important tree species um across the southeast of the u.s to have an understanding of which type of plants burn the best and which ones burn less well to give an example i mean to give an understanding of how this sort of looks in ecosystems to to get how fires will pass through different types of forests which mm -hmm. is obviously really important for like conservation and fire management but even more important you know with global change things getting drier and more fiery as it turns out if you had to guess what sorts of plants would you think are the most burny uh isn't isn't eucalypt one of the ones that's full of oils and it goes up like kindling? yeah that's one of that's one of the ones in in australia what's what's something that's oily in in europe and the u.s uh pines pines the one yeah so like as as expected there was a chestnut that was really flammable and then sort of a whole lot of pines were pretty flammable oaks not bad either um and then on the the other side of things there was like some hardwoods and stuff and also um maple which were not so mm -hmm. but i thought that was like kind of an interesting thing to be looking at and i came across that because i was originally looking at a an article that was looking at litter flammability of a fire adaptive pine so one of these pine species it's pinus rigida which is or rigida maybe pitch pine um 
maybe it's rigid because it has it's sort of a pine that grows in weird shapes it doesn't grow very straight i saw something mm-hmm. on wikipedia that it's it's not good for timber because it tends to like grow in little crooked ways um but this is a plant that does like fire so it's pretty happy about it but they were actually looking within this species at different populations across different environments and seeing um the ones that grow in areas that are more susceptible to fire versus the one that grow in different areas that are less susceptible to fire and they wanted to understand if there were genetic differences um between these and also if there's sort of phenotypic plasticity so the ability to sort of change how flammable you are depending on you know what's what's happening maybe what you want um, but maybe also environmental conditions so they sort of like compared um the flammability of the leaf litter from the the plants in their native environments these different environments either like where there's often fires or where there's not but then they also brought the plants into sort of um greenhouses they did like common garden experiments so you bring them into a more controlled environment and then you've got all these now plants with a different genetic background with different environmental backgrounds that are growing in the same area and you're seeing like how much they have changed sort Mm -hmm. of the plasticity between growing natively and growing there and sort of compare like the genotype and the phenotype differences so this is quite a common um study that's done in in the field sort of comparing under controlled condition versus in natural environments and they show that the ones that um there is this like capacity for local adaptation and they're the ones that were um, in warmer and drier climates, which presumably has more frequent historical fire regimes, they had like greater plasticity. So this more ability to sort of have this switch of the phenotype with the phenotype being how how much their little likes to set on fire and burn the world down. So I thought uh, that was kind of interesting. And when they're growing in areas where there's less fires, do they then adapt to that and want to start less fires as well? Or is it the other way around? Is that is that do they try to dampen the fire load in fiery regions and when there's no fire around they're like, I really like to start a fire now? I don't know, because I couldn't get behind the paywall. Oh, okay. Uh, Too bad. <laughs> it's a shame. We have to do our um, own experiments. <laughs> you know what? I'm, I'm guessing that it might have been not necessarily more or less, because they said greater plasticity, and I feel like they would have stated in the abstract mm-hmm. these ones were more flammable, you yeah. know, if it was such a clear thing. So I think it's maybe more that there was more um, variation what I learned from this is that if I want to collect kindling or fire starter in the forest, uh, oak leaves work better than, for example, maple leaves or other sort of green leaves or then pines if I have that. But um, I think pine is like traditionally used, right? You've got those fine needles. It's really perfect. I mean, as long as it's dry, that's, yeah, that's but, commonly a thing, right? Yeah, but I think pine, at least in my very little experience, they, they make a lot of sparks when the, the little leaflets pop and then that can become uh. dangerous or unpleasant when these things i i just knew that if you have like a little wood f- fire somewhere you don't really want to throw pines in there because then it gets unpleasant because so it's time for our, our weekly disclaimer that you should not be trying this at home please do not <laughs> learn from us how to start fires we are not those kind of doctors fire doctors um, <laughs> as with all the times we mention human health please 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 we don't know what we're talking about get another yeah. source <laughs> Um, I also found a paper uh, it's called a glyphosate based herbicide in soil differentially uh, affects hormonal homeostasis and performance of non-target crop plants wait 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 go back so glyphosate that's roundup yeah and it goes into the soil and it's affecting the hormones of plants that are not the ones that it was applied to yeah is that what's happening okay yes and this can happen when 
In general, it's it's um, believed that glyphosate is fairly quickly turned over in the soil, but there's still very small amounts of glyphosate left in, in the soil, according to this study. Um, not enough that you can actually suppress growth um, in, a, in a larger scale, so it's not sort of active anymore as a herbicide, but it's still there, and they looked mm -hmm. at what happens if you grow oats, um, potatoes or strawberries on this soil that was um, used before uh, uh, with glyphosate. Okay. And they found that phytohormones change um, because, uh, probably dependent on, I mean, we talked about this before, but glyphosate works on this amino acid uh, biosynthesis pathway, very central to plant biology. And if you destroy that, the plant can't grow. And potentially if you just like nudge it a little bit by having a little bit of the inhibitory chemical there, not enough to fully stop it, um, this then triggers a response by the plant in terms of uh, phytohormones. And what they found here um, is that uh, oats plants had an elevated stress response, so they were more resistant to herbivores um, because they were sort of in a state of alert already. Um, potato plants grew a little bit faster they or, or like had more biomass that they produced, and strawberries did not care at all about the glyphosate in the soil. Um, but this, this, what this shows, and I, that's why I think it's important to mention uh, this study, is that there are changes and there are some effects, but so far they seem to be fairly minimal and not necessarily bad for the plants. And I just want to put this out before somebody, because the, the headline that I saw says that um, herbicide residues in soil affect hormone levels in crop plants. And this is not wrong, but I think when the general public hears about hormone levels that are affected, they think that something bad to humans is happening because if mm. something happens to our hormones that's usually pretty bad and of well, course also linked. plants care about their hormone levels but uh, their hormone levels react to all kinds of things in nature constantly i mean it's also really important wording because we have um like a separate sort of environmental issue at the moment it's like this this kind of plastics bpas having this you know does this mimic mm -hmm. the the estrogen and like human hormones and whether that's dangerous to you so it's definitely like pulling in that terminology that links to that yeah that thing and okay so you're still you're still pro glyphosate you reckon <laughs> no i don't i don't think this is a study where it can be like pro or, or against glyphosate just from that by Bia. Bia. <laughs> <laughs> no but i i just know that a study like this will come up in some way somewhere and it will be interpreted in a in a certain direction and that's why i want to mention it here that what they found is yes there is a small effect um so far like for oat plants it made them more resistant it they didn't, uh, as far as I know, didn't look into if this, for example, has then a yield uh, penalty, mm -hmm. for example. If they're constantly ready to defend themselves, they make maybe less grain, potentially. Um, they didn't look into that so far. They just looked at what happens on a hormonal level and did some, some basic testing there. Uh, so And only tested three crops. And in these three crops, the responses were very different. So you can imagine that another crop reacts in another way, potentially in a, in a, in a worse way. Um, so it's very important to study these things, but I think it's also important, important not to be hyper alerted by um, the, the findings and then scream bloody murder um, about something just based on comparatively small findings here. Uh, and that's why I wanted to mention that because yeah, in the popular science articles, it didn't it 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 looked a little bit more um, yeah alert and and and. I'm I'm missing a word here, but I think you get the idea. It looked more alarming. You think? Alarming you is think the word. Okay, alert. Alarming. Alarming. 
<laughs> Thank you. It's one of those um the coronavirus words like be alert against the coronavirus. That's what our um yeah, and don't be too alarmed. Messaging. I mean, do maybe about Corona. I don't know, but um, <laughs> the thing I wanted to talk about is not really a fact. It's just um a weird again another wormhole I went down to today. So you're if I said indusium, what would you guess an indusium is? <laughs> um. <laughs> In, in exactly. I've never heard of it before either. <laughs> I also might be like up like a link I also to might be saying word. it wrong. <laughs> so all of all of the non-flowering plant people are maybe screaming at us now. So you know <laughs> you know on a fern when you turn the leaf over to the other side, yeah. you look at the bottom side, the abaxial side. Yeah. Um, you see stuff that looks like it's maybe insects' eggs on the bottom of it. Yeah, and it's the spores, right? And they exactly can have f- f- a funky shapes sometimes. Yeah, so quite quite often they're sort of in these round circles, and the circles is not like a, a spore; it's like a cluster of many things that contain the spores. So it's not even like, yeah, it's sort of like the big big clusters um, with with billions and billions of spores. Um, and sometimes, not in all ferns, but in some ferns, these clusters of um, spores, which are called soruses or sori, I guess is the correct plural um they have a little cap on the top of them and that's called the indusium so this cap it's basically like kind of a scab that is protecting the spores as they mature so protecting these structures with the spores as like the spores are maturing um and you can sort of imagine it if you have put your palm sort of up like put your hand on the table with the palm up and imagine the the part of the the hand that's touching the table. So the back of the hand is containing like is where all the spore bits are. Mm-hmm. And then as this matures, this indusium sort of dries out. And then because it dries out, all of those cells sort of shrink upwards, and the the hand sort of curls upwards um, from the table. And then the the underside of the the hand or the indusium, which has all of these spore containing bits sort of gets exposed and that allows mm-hmm. the the spores to come out. But that's only the first step. So like first you have this sort of cap coming up and some some ferns have the indusium and some of them have sort of a fake indusium. It's not a proper indusium because I think the real indusium has to develop from epidermal cells and this is sort of, I don't know where it comes from, um, but it's called a fake indusium, a false indusium. So this has to curl up first from drying out. But then, as I mentioned, those things underneath, it's not just the spores. It's sort of spores in these little projectile missile things. So now what you're going to have to do is have your arm like in a fist, um, <laughs> but like with your elbow hanging downwards. And that's basically how this thing looks. So like the arm is this like long rod and at the top you've got um, this rounded bit. And that is then inside your, your fist now. That's where the spores are. So then first you've got this cap lifting off, but then you've got these little like fist thing. And then the fist can open up as well. And again, there's a change in sort of the water pressure, which changes how the the cells um, shrink and change. And then it ends up with your fist opening up. And when the fist opens up, the spores go like flying out. Um, and that actually helps the plant to send its spores into the distance. And there's a paper about this because, Yoram, I know you love papers which show seeds and other things hurtling into space very yes. quickly. <laughs> so I'm going to link to a paper. It's called Sporangium. So that's these like structures with the, the spores. Exposure and spore release in the Peruvian maidenhair fern. 
It's actually a common house plant. Many of you might have it at home. Um, and it shows at the bottom of this, there's a few different supplementary videos which show both the disgusting scab cap sort of lifting upwards um, <laughs> and then also this um, capsule thing opening up. So it's kind of this, um, yeah, the, the capsule thing is also called an annulus, which doesn't sound great either, um, but they, they dub it like a throwing arm. So mm -hmm. this it's got this kind of catapult thing and that's the throwing arm part of it. And apparently you can go up to a velocity of five meters per second. Um, which I, of course, checked to see how fast it is. That comes up to about 18 kilometers per hour, which is about half the speed of Usain Bolt running the 100-meter dash. So that's like... Okay. It's not a very long distance that the, the spores run, but I don't know, probably relative to the size of the spore versus Usain Bolt versus 100 meters. Like, they probably do fine, right? It's probably... <laughs> <laughs> they're probably actually better than, than humans in the end. I think that's usually <laughs> the lesson, right? Um, yeah, yeah, Usain Bolt can go at like... Maximum speed of 45 kilometers an hour about. Mm -hmm. um, and these are going at 18. So that's not, yeah, it's not he, bad for a little fern spore. Yeah, he can outrun a fern spore. I don't know if I could outrun a fern spore. Probably not. I think not. No. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. It's, it's kind of fascinating. It is something where I would say if you're one of those people who has that fear of holes or like a real disgust by things mm -hmm. that look like bugs, don't be looking at this paper because it has that slightly disease looking thing that kind of some like we have this human response mm -hmm. to right where you see holes and and clusters of bugs and stuff and you just think oh no um yeah so trigger warning or something a content warning here i think we need <laughs> good now i'm uh, intrigued I, I want to look at it now because i have a little bit of this tryptophobia this fear of holes um but in a, in a weird way where i don't enjoy looking at them it makes me uneasy but at the same time i'm fascinated by the fascinated by this response so i sometimes like seek this out and then i'm all creepy and goosebumpy and be like i don't want to see this but then i click on the next so image and like, i don't and want to so see many, this there's so many photoshopped ones on images as well where mm -hmm. it's like their yeah it's really but to me making me uncomfortable to even think about it honestly yeah yeah but there's some some real ones non-photoshopped and these are terrible enough but anyway um, from ferns to trees i have a story that uh, about another paper that's i think published in in nature it's called old ancient trees are life history lottery winners and vital evolutionary resources for long-term adaptive capacity published in nature plants um, and this is a work where the researchers um, namely uh, Charles Cannon, uh, Gianluca Piovesan and Sergi Munebosch looked at um, statistical data um, from previous studies and looked at the individual tree lifespans. And from that, they, they found that a very small number of trees in a forest, about 1% of a population, uh, achieves this ancient status where they can live to 10 to 20 times longer than the average of the forest overall. So if you think about... Like, oak trees they all live um i don't know 20 30 years and then you have ones that are 200 or 300 years old and usually these are um about like one percent of the population so we have very few mm -hmm. of these ancient trees and they're not only weird outliers weird mutants and freaks that manage to to live very long they are also very important for the uh, genetic diversity and overall health of the forest because they continue to grow and continue to produce pollen and seeds and they're sort of a time capsule of genetic information that existed that from a hundred years ago and now we have all of these plants that are already a couple of generations 
ahead and they can crossbreed with that and um, that increases the overall health of the ecosystem. I mean, yes, nice for genetic diversity and stuff, but I also remember this paper from, I mean, it must be 10 years ago now, where they were looking at how um, like older flowers on Arabidopsis, as the flowers aged, the pollen got less good quality. So like the 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 offspring from those older pollen were actually producing less viable offspring. I mean, I know this is an older plant and it's probably making like it's making fresh flowers, but it might still have some reproductive problems as it ages. That's quite common among species. I wonder if that's Yeah, that's a good question. Um in unfortunately the the full article is behind the paywall and I mostly have information from a summary and so I don't know if they if they went into that, but it's a good point. But maybe the overall success rate dimin uh, like goes down, but still there's a chance that they make some viable pollen that like successfully outcrosses. Uh, but I think the main benefit of that is that there might be changes to the, the ecosystem that, that happens in longer cycles than the lifespan of the tree on average. And therefore, mm -hmm. these ancient ones can have genetic adaptations to things okay. mm -hmm. that the current population of trees hasn't experienced. But it's like so often we have the climate change and deforestation and these are also threatening these very old trees and with them are gone uh, a very important genetic resource for the tree population is going so um, it's important to also protect these very old ancient trees to identify them and take special measures to protect them because they have uh, they're not only it's not only for us sort of on a abstract level cool to know that this tree was around when whatever historical event happened in the past but they're also very important for their population um, and therefore they mm. they require special protection because yeah they might also then because of their age be more susceptible to effects of the climate crisis like now storms right now and that we're experiencing right now are um, killing older trees more than younger trees because then they, they're bigger and more that more wind can impact like like break stuff but off they're less and kill bendy. Them. yeah they're less bendy they have a larger crown that like catches a larger force of the wind and all of this stuff um so yeah that's um these old ancient trees are very important for the ecosystem speaking of wind um i found a, an article that is actually looking at how changes in wind which can be linked to things like the climate change um is actually promoting growth of vegetation. So it's looking sort of at the global level um, um, and seeing how vegetation growth has changed um, across time, so since the 1980s until 2013. And they think that the wind speed has played a role. So wind speed has actually go gone down and this has enhanced vegetation growth, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of interesting. I think we've, we've mentioned this on the podcast before, the fact that we don't often think about the fact that plants do respond to touch. Um, mm -hmm. Thygomorphous, is it called? Thygomorph... I think thygomorphic <laughs> response is um, the thing, or thygomorphogenesis, and they can be like the one where it just responds to touch, or this one where it also like moves in the direction of an object, like a um, a vine trailing up a, a stick, this kind of thing. So plants like can respond to touch, and this is sort of showing that wind has an effect. I mean, obviously wind can have multiple effects, so it can have this sort of physical effect, but it can also be sort of drying, um, mm -hmm. you know, evapotranspiration and stuff like that. But yeah. I thought that's kind of interesting. It's not something that we think of that much, I would say. Mm -hmm. So you say climate change is good? 
I'm not saying that at all. <laughs> the final thing I want to mention um, before we go, and this is a fact that I heard um, listening to one of my favorite podcasts, No Such Thing as a Fish, this morning as I was walking around. Um, there's a fact about artichokes. Did you hear this one? No, I didn't. Okay, so Jerusalem artichoke. Do you know what a Jerusalem artichoke is? No. Okay, so I know what it is because we, in my house, my, my family house, my, we had different garden beds which were sort of designated for different things. So we had like a purple garden bed or a yellow garden bed, but there was also like a herb garden bed and a vegetable garden bed. And one time my sister was like, I don't understand what's happening. Somebody put sunflowers in the vegetable garden bed. And as it turns out, it wasn't sunflowers, it's Jerusalem artichokes. And Jerusalem artichokes are basically, they look like sunflowers, but then they have a sort of rooty bit which tastes a bit like artichokes. So you you eat this like stocky tuber thing and it has a, a faint flavor yeah. of artichokes. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at pictures and like, this is not an artichoke at all. Um, yeah. It looks To me, it looks like a, a thick ginger type of tuber. It has the, the, the markings like you would find it on ginger. Exactly. So, I mean, the, the artichoke comes from the flavor, um, definitely not the, the look, but then the look, if you look at um, a picture of the plant itself, mm -hmm. can you see the plant? Yeah. It's basically a sunflower. Yeah. The, the, kind the, of a shabby sunflower. Yeah, the, the center bit of the sunflower, like the big round thing of the sunflower with the sunflower seeds. It's so impressive that it's much smaller here, but the, mm -hmm. the leaf color and the, the way the leaflets look, it's, it's very sunflowery. So it turns out that like the this is just a cool fact that I heard on this podcast. The etymology behind why Jerusalem artichokes have got their name as Jerusalem artichokes is in fact not because they come from Jerusalem. It's because there was a language mix up where the word for sunflower in like Latin languages, Spanish and Italian is like girasol. So it's like girar is to like turn mm. and sol is the sun. So they were called like girasole artichokes, something. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm screwing up the language, but girasole artichokes. And over time, people, I guess, didn't understand this word. It's, it's what we do when we don't really understand something. We just like adapt it to what our brain fills in the blanks and adapt to something that is a word. So apparently this sort of got mutated into Jerusalem artichokes. So they're called Jerusalem artichokes because they are girasole artichokes, which is sunflower artichokes. <laughs> That's cute, huh? That, that, that reminds me of the, the the reason why in Germany we call chickpeas, um, literally translated giggle peas, um, because uh, it's it's pretty much the same story. Uh, the Latin name for peas is kika, and so they were sold as kika peas, or kika erbsen, mm. and from kika erbsen over time it became kicher erbsen, which means giggle peas. Uh, and so now kids sometimes ask, why are they called giggle peas? They're not giggling really, and it comes down to the same thing people didn't understand what the word means slowly mm -hmm. changed it and now it has a different um a different meaning that's seemingly unrelated to the thing that it is i like that so much that's really cute yeah okay yeah do you have a f uh, cat fact for us today yes i do cat fact And my cat fact today is, some people might have guessed it, not about a cat, but today about parrots. I found a story that um, scientists taught cockatoos how to play golf. And this is 
first of all, of, of course, you want cockatoos to be able to play golf. It's a very important social game. It's how you make a lot of business deals. So it's important that they can learn the skill. Mm -hmm. But also, it's a um, combination of tools. And that's something that's uh, considered the uh, a very important um, skill for mostly first we, we thought it was only reserved to us humans that we're able to combine several tools together to make a bigger thing happen but then okay. it was shown that also primates can do that they can use an anvil and a hammer together to open up certain fruits so they're mm -hmm. not using the hammer only they specifically combine two things together um, and in this case they taught cockatoos to combine a ball and a stick and a little um, contraption to then move the ball around uh, into a little bucket and then they had some some food released this in itself was cool to show that the birds are able to combine these tools together to actually um to get their food and to learn that and also to learn that from observation not only from their handlers but also from other birds but another very cool thing and that's linked in the article that's uh, in the show notes is that um the the three best ones of these cockatoos called figaro fini and pipin Uh, all had so figure and Pippin. Yeah, had different ways to solve the problem. Each of them had a different way of holding the stick and and putting it into the little cage. Uh, and if they they took it apart uh, and to really analyze, I mean, to me it looks like a bird that puts a stick in a cage. But then they said like this one is holding it with its foot, this one is holding it with the upper beak and its tongue, this one is holding it sort of sideways with its beak. So they all creatively came up with their own solution to the problem it's not that they all sorry i'm I'm gonna be honest i feel like you oversold playing golf i'm looking at this <laughs> and it's a bird poking a stick into a hole it's yeah. not it's But, not the beautiful image i had in my mind's eye <laughs> yeah i don't know what what the two tools or multiple tools exactly are that they're using here because i've seen birds poke stuff with sticks before but you're right um, he has to poke the stick to make it move the ball the ball instead of just poking the stick like he's not yeah. just poking the stick onto the button he has to use the stick to hit the ball and the ball has to be hit into the right spot yeah. to get Okay. And they also had to geometrically assess where the ball is and where to place the stick to push it in. And some of them used a raking motion and some others used a different motion um, to, to move the ball around. And yeah, it shows that these birds are just very clever. They came up with three distinct oh. creative solutions to actually put the ball into a little cup and then get their food. So I want to mention there's a video and they first have to also put the ball into the mm -hmm. cage. So they have to first pick the ball off the ground and put it in and then pick up the stick and then like yeah. poke that in and stabby, stabby, stab. Looks kind of fun. Looks like a good game for children. You've got young children. <laughs> I suggest. Um, yeah. But no, they, um, even, even human children under the age of eight struggle to invent new solutions to tasks. So they just repeat the task and these birds invented new solutions to, to the task at hand. So clever, more clever than children under the age of eight, um, approximately. I mean, it's hard to directly compare these things. Um, and I know we've had this discussion before, but are you sure you don't want to have a segment on this podcast where we get your small children to see if they can do bird tasks? <laughs> I mean, if it wouldn't be so much work to set up the experiments and then potentially it's have my tricky. kid just be, uh, I don't feel like doing it, and then <laughs> it's all for nothing. Well, you have to make the tree good enough, right? I mean, I'm sure the bird doesn't feel like doing it all the time. I, I should, I should really repeat the marshmallow experiment by now. 
mm. um, I would be interesting to see what's what's happening now. And now that I have two, I, can I think what that. happened last time in the marshmallow experiment, Yoram's child outsmarted Yoram. <laughs> he just like grabbed a child and took the second a chair and took the second marshmallow when Yoram wasn't looking. Yeah, he he was <laughs> using tools to get to, to his goal. Um, <laughs> so brave, so strong, so wise. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's very clever birds. Um, that's all from us today. If you want to hear more from us, we have a website. It's plantsandpets.com. You can also talk to me on Instagram mostly. Sometimes on Facebook, it's at plantsandpets. If on, you want to talk to Yoram. Yes, then you can talk to me on Twitter. That's at plantsandpets. And as always, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. Thank you very much, guys. See you later. Goodbye.